Welcome weirdos, we are back! We have had a hiatus uh, for about a year and some change. Uh, we do apologize for kind of running out of the bill on this one. Uh, we had to, you know, uh, come up with a different game plan. Anyway, we are here today with, uh, well, if you want to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Dylan Hutchins. I'm a paramedic student, hockey player, amateur rapper. Yeah. All right. Um. So I guess today we're just gonna, uh, I guess, interview Dylan, and uh, I say I'd probably want to focus mostly on the neuroscience. Sure. Okay. Uh. So just to tie in the the hockey with everything, if uh, if any kind of fight breaks out on the ice, does anybody look to you like, okay, man, you're the ER here? <laughs> So, in those instances, most hockey teams they have their own pers- like their own trainers. So they have their own docs that go around with them, and they help them out for most of their injuries. Mm. The EMTs and paramedics inside the arena, they're there only for serious injuries. Oh, wow. Like if the player, like for instance, a couple times in NHL history, a player has gotten their throat cut oh, by uh, ice skate. Yeah. And, you know, they're there, they're squirting blood out onto, out onto the ice. And, I mean, these guys are tough. They freaking just slap their hand over their neck and they skate off the ice. But So the EMTs and paramedics are there for those kinds of injuries where these guys have to go to the hospital. Or, like, oh. if they get knocked out and they don't get up. Right. So you're basically on, like, borrowed time because you're losing blood pressure with every heartbeat, right? Oh, yeah, especially with, like, and the neck gets cut. Those are under high pressure. Right. So blood's going to come out of them quick. Plus, they're extremely important because they're going to the brain. So those, yeah, you 100% want to get them to definitive care quickly. Okay. All I can think of is the uh, the scene in Death Note whenever Mika, like, cuts his throat and just, like, this spray of blood comes out. <laughs> Honestly, in reality, it is can be like that. Really? Like, you'll, you'll have people lying down in the stretcher in the back of the ambulance and... You know, some artery is cut, and you let off pressure on it, and it goes and it hits the ceiling. Oh. Do you have to clean that? Of course. So you have to sterilize the the whole thing? The whole thing, yeah. So what if you get a call while you're in the middle of sterilizing? Then you go to the... It it depends on what kind of sterilizing you're doing. Like, if it's... If you had a guy who was extremely sick, had, like, a really contagious disease, then, yeah, what you do, you just go what's called out-of-service. Okay. And so the whole EMS system, they'll give you time to decontaminate the back of the ambulance, and then uh, you go back into service. I see a lot of those uh, Capital Metro buses that are out of service. I wonder if someone just has a violent vomit and they get... <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, that, that'd be a good reason to put them out of service. I don't want to ride on a bus that's got vomit dripping from the ceiling. Oh, Jesus, that'd be terrible. Um, personally, what's the worst thing you've seen on the ice? On the ice? Yeah. Mm, like while I'm working or just in general ever. Have you had to go to a hockey team? Yeah, I've worked I've worked hockey games before. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And nothing's happened. That's ex- so extremely rare. Right. And most of those guys are so tough that like they don't they'll break a leg and skate off on it. <laughs> you know. Um Yeah. Jeez. So I haven't seen anything too bad working at a hockey game. How about, uh, you know, on, on call? Um, yeah, I mean, you see bad stuff. 
Um, I'm still pretty new to the field, so the worst I've seen was this guy. It's called a GI bleed, like gastrointestinal. Mm-hmm. And so you're bleeding somewhere along your system, anywhere between your mouth and your anus. Wow, that's a lot <clears> to uh, to cover. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it can get it can get pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. It's got a certain smell to it that you just know that someone's got a GI bleed as soon as you smell it. Like there's a cut in their body or it comes out of their mouth or something? Uh, it's a, you could call it a cut, but it's like an internal one. Cuts, not really the word for like a it. a puncture or a rupture or something? It could be a rupture or something. Like, okay, this guy, he was a heavy smoker. And so odds are he had ulcers inside of his stomach. Mm-hmm. And he also, this guy's unlucky. He had this, um, like this disease, like he was born with it, myelodysplastic syndrome is that's an umbrella term and he had a specific one where he doesn't clot well so he had an ulcer in his stomach that then started bleeding and he had missed an appointment he went to go needed to go get some platelets it's the thing that helps you clot and he missed an appointment so he didn't have any of that and so his ulcer started bleeding and didn't stop bleeding Jesus. and so i know it's nasty because then what happens is the blood it goes through the whole GI tract and it gets digested and then the guy, you know, shit himself. Mm-hmm. And it's what we call a dark tarry stool. Yeah, yeah. That's the color of it. And then the smell, as soon as we walked in, we're like, oh, okay, let's go. I got you. It's time to pack him up. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I knew a guy in the Navy who, uh, he had an ulcer and they had to cut, you know, his stomach and then they had to go in through his intestines and they gave him like dissolvable uh you know stitching Mm -hmm. and apparently the one on the inside dissolved a lot faster than the one on the outside so like it was rubbing as it started to break apart yeah and it was like running the uh, rubbing the inner lining of him and like you could see he like he would double over and you're like what's up and he's just like oh my insides are just fighting (laughs) jesus yeah yeah um or like what, you know, your friend was talking about with the aneurysm. She had a sharp tear, inst- like sudden sharp tearing pain yeah. in her abdomen. And that's, yeah, that would freak me out if I'm treating her as my patient. Because I'm like, oh shit. Because that's possibly could be called the abdominal aortic aneurysm. And so the aorta is like the main artery of your whole body. Okay. That's the one that goes from the heart and it curves up around your left side and then goes all the way down to the abdomen and then every other artery branches off right from the aorta gotcha and so the an aneurysm then is when the wall of any blood vessel kind of kind of balloons outwards uh, from excess pressure and reduced elasticity because your arteries are elastic they can go out and then back in out and back in and that's also how we can uh, control blood pressure, huh. is the constriction of these arteries. <clears throat> well, and so what happens is it loses elasticity and it bubbles out. And then the problem with that is it makes it more prone to rupture. And the last thing you want is the main blood-carrying vessel in your body to pop open and spring a leak. Right. That's very bad. So, you know, at the time of feeling the pain, you know, it's not a huge deal. But you're really worried because it could rupture and then you, they have very, very low survival rates Jeez. of that rupturing. Yeah, so that's got to be looked at, taken care of soon. Wow. Um, uh, just to switch topics a little bit, uh, sure. the, uh, 
the degree that you have? What what exactly is the degree? Uh, so I've got a bachelor's in human biology, and then with this program, I could get an associate's with emergency medicine, but I kind of just want to get through the program as quick as I can, and the classes I would have to take would be like end-of-life studies, weight training. You know, there are things that aren't necessarily crucial mm-hmm. to being a paramedic. Right. So I'm just... I'm not going to get the associates. I don't really care about the pieces of paper. Yeah, the accolades. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just want the knowledge. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> what would you say is, like, the most interesting thing you learned in your schooling? Most interesting thing I learned? That's hard. And one thing I learned that surprised me is how few calls to 911 people make, like, when they call an ambulance, that are actual emergencies. Oh, wow. I, like, it seems, at least here in Austin, only about a quarter of the people who call 911 for an ambulance actually need an ambulance. The rest either don't even need to go to the hospital, or they do need to go get checked out at a hospital or at a primary care physician, but they or someone else can drive them. Gotcha. Uh, but they... You know, people, you get scared. You call 911 and we're the ones to come in and, you know, solve the issue right then and there. And so, you know, we take, that's actually a big problem here in the States compared to like the, in London, like in the UK, they don't transport as many people. Like it's about 30% of the calls that they get. They just leave the person there at their house. No, cause they, they, they see them, they do the assessment and they say, oh, okay, you, uh, you don't need to go to an emergency room. Like, we know what's wrong with you. You don't have to go. Or here in the States, you've got the huge issue of being sued. So there's a whole cover-your-ass mentality. Mm. So you're like, I, I'm like 90% sure what's wrong with this person. But that slight 10% or even 99% sure. But that slight percent that I could be wrong, right. that's going to get I'm going to lose my license. I'm going to lose my job, lose all this money. And so we take people to the hospital who a lot of times don't need to go. <clears throat> How much money does that cost versus, you know, being left at your house to, you know, writing with you guys? Well, I mean, it's, it's the United States, so healthcare is extremely expensive. Uh, ambulance is very expensive. You know, it can cost thousands of dollars for like a 15-minute trip to wow. the emergency room. Like, I just learned this recently. It completely shocked me uh, to check your blood sugar. Right, like the things you can pick up at Walgreens for 30 bucks, where you prick your finger and you just drip a little blood onto that test strip and mm-hmm. it shows you on the tiny little monitor to show you what your blood sugar is. It's for diabetics mostly. That costs $400. If you're on an ambulance, every time that they check your blood sugar, that costs $400. Wow. Yeah. So, it's an expense. And the thing is, it's not they're trying to rip you off. It is expensive to run an like, EMS service. Yeah. Um, like the heart monitors. If you call 911 for chest pain, thinking you might be having a heart attack, and they go and they, we take those little sticky pads and we put them on people's chests. Right. And we pull it up on the monitor and get what's called a 12 lead. It's looking at the electrical activity of the heart. And those monitors, those are really expensive. Is that an EKG? Yeah. That's an EKG. It can do a lot more, though. Really? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, those things, they can defi- they can shock people. You know, so we can defibrillate. We can do what's called 
uh, cardioversion or pacing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when somebody has a pacemaker, right. we can do that with the monitor just from the outside. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like external pacing. Even if they don't have a pacemaker? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because a pacemaker, all it is is just it sends electrical shocks to the heart. It's just a thing that they go and they plant it on the heart. And it okay. just sends little shocks to the heart, so it pumps at the right, uh, the right beat, right, the right rate. A good metronome. Have you seen those sleeves that they're starting to put over hearts now? The sleeves? Yeah, it's like this uh, clear sleeve that you can put, and it's like a bladder, and it actually squeezes. Oh, your it squeezes heart. the heart. Yeah, yeah, there are things like called a left ventricular assist device, and it, yeah, it'll go right there, and it even has, in case the machine stops working, uh-huh. it has a little pump. And it's just this little pump, and you, you squeeze the pump, and it'll pump their heart and pump the blood around their entire system. Those are those are interesting because some of them, the person won't have a pulse because it's just it's not a it's not a right. That's not how the machine works. It's just a continuous flow of blood because their heart's just not working at all. Hmm. So this machine pumps the blood, but it doesn't do it in a beat by beat motion. It does it as a continuous stream. And so you'll feel for their pulse, and they're talking to you. They're walking around, and they've got no pulse. Wow. Wait, so you've seen um, someone like that? Yeah. Uh, actually, this guy did have a pulse. He didn't have one of those. Um, yeah, I saw a guy in the ER. He had its LVAD, left ventricular assist device, but he had a pulse. He had a different kind. Um, but as far as, like, costs, like those monitors I was talking about, they can do all kinds of things, but they cost easily over $10,000. To buy them, not even to maintain them, and you think about Austin's got about thirty to thirty-five ambulances running at any given time. Right. So that's three hundred thousand dollars right there. Is my math right? Yeah, three hundred thousand dollars just for one piece of equipment, and that's not even it's not trucks, gasoline. Holy crap! Right. Most expensive part though is training and just paying your EMTs and paramedics. Do y'all's trucks use diesel or just regular gas? Couldn't tell you. I don't know. I would assume regular, just to make it easier on you guys. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, trucks that big, you'd think it could be diesel. It could be. It all depends on what kind of truck you're driving. Um, um, yeah. Do you guys have to fuel up at like any location, or do you guys have like a special location? It depends. Some stations have their own gas. Wow. Like some EMS stations, you know, where we live basically for that 24-hour shift. Mm-hmm have their own gas. So you can fuel up right there at the station. That's cool. But there's there's a book called uh, Thousand Naked Strangers, written by this guy who is a paramedic out in Atlanta. And he tells a story one time <laughs> how they went to a gas station to fill up the ambulance full of gas, and then he went to use, like the, for lack of a better word, the company credit card to pay for it. And for some reason the card wasn't working and they didn't have money on them to pay for the gas themselves. So they just, like, drove off. Oh, wow. With the gas somehow. And, um... But, yeah, you can fuel up anywhere, really. That's good. Yeah. Um, what do you guys normally do whenever you have downtime? It all depends. I mean, if you work in Austin EMS, downtime is a relative term. Because um, they're so busy. You know, on average, you'll get... 12 to 16 calls in a 24-hour period and if you include like from when you leave the station to when you get back from that one call they'll usually last 
30 minutes to an hour. Most, I mean, it's because you take them to the hospital, right? So you got to go to the, wherever the call takes you. You got to do a quick assessment. And so you're usually on there for at least 10 minutes, maybe a lot, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And you take them to the hospital and depending on Austin traffic, you know, it could be a 10, 15 minute drive. That could be a 30 to 45 minute drive, depending on which one you have to take them to. Right. And that's just to get there, then to get back. And so, you know, one call would be an hour to two hours and you get 12 of those in a 24 hour shift. You don't get much downtime, but when you do, you just kind of sit on the recliners they've got there, screw around on your phone, watching football or TV. Um, I mean, some, I, I was a student, so, you know, I studied right. a lot while I was there. Um, firefighters, they have it nice because they don't have to transport. They just they show up on scene because they go to medical calls, too. Like 80% of their calls are medical as well. Really? Yeah. When you call 911 for an illness or injury, you're going to get a fire truck and an ambulance at that call. Like, almost guaranteed. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, the, the firefighters, they usually get their first... Uh, because there's more fire stations and fire trucks than there are ambulances, and they're also not as busy. So you call 911 for being sick or hurt, odds are they're the closest fire station to you. Those guys aren't busy, so they show up. Whereas the closest ambulance to you, they're probably off doing something else, so they got to send someone who's a bit further away. Okay. So the fire truck shows up, and those guys, they're all EMT basics, which means they have basic medical training and knowledge they can take a, they'll take a few vital signs the good ones really know how to do a thorough assessment you know there's a whole stereotype in EMS that you know firefighters are incompetent when it comes to medical stuff and there's a grain of truth to it but there's plenty of firefighters out there that are great at medical assessments and uh, they take good vital they know which vital signs are the most important for that specific patient so the fire truck shows up, they'll do a quick assessment, get some vital signs, and the ambulance shows up, and then care is transferred to the ambulance, and the firefighters, they're going to go back to the station. Oh, okay. They're going to go back to their workout, you know, lift some weights, <laughs> cook some food. All right, eat some chili. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> firefight it's a nice job, firefighting. That's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have you ever seen the, sh- uh, the show Sirens? I think it was on TBS, maybe. Uh-uh. No, the, I try to avoid those 911 shows. Okay. Well, it was more of a comedy. Um, okay. But that's the closest thing I got to, like, seeing what you've done. Seeing it? Yeah. There's... I can't watch any medical-related stuff on TV anymore just because of how many things that they get wrong. Okay. So it's like me watching Top Gun. I got you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'd be like, yeah, Air Force guy watching Top Gun or... No, or it'd be... Honestly, I gotta correct you. It's Navy, bud. Navy. Yeah. Well, yeah, but Top Carrier. Guns. Top Gun. Oh, that was. Yeah, Fallon Nevada is where it's at now. Oh, okay. I thought. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to guess the first one. <laughs> it, it would be like a guy in the army playing Call of Duty. Like it's just that far from the truth that it's really hard to watch. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, you just see some mistakes that they make in there. The most, like, okay, the most common mistake that you'll see in any medical drama at all is, like, on the heart monitor when it's a flat line, and everyone's like, okay, get the defibrillator, we gotta shock them. They get the paddle, bzz, and they shock the guy on a flat line, you don't do that. The That flat line, we call, that's called asystole, 
you don't shock asystole. Hmm. That doesn't get a shock because so defibrillation when you shock the heart, what's happening is the heart's sending out electrical activity in a way that it shouldn't be in in a way that's not sustainable with life. Uh, so that'd be like VTAC, VFib. Uh, those are the only two you can shock. And so what you do is when you shock the heart, you're not restarting it or you're not trying to you're not changing the rhythm. The shock, all it does is it completely stops all electrical activity in the heart. And so when you do that, your hope then is that the natural pacemaker of the heart will then take over again and start beating and sending electrical activity as it should. So that's all you're doing with the shock is you're turning off the heart and saying, hey, stop. And then hoping that the heart will start on its own the right way. Uh, and so then in a flat line, there's already no electrical activity. Right. Right. So there's no electrical activity and the heart is not picking up its own. It's not starting its own beat. So shocking it, it's just going to keep them at a flat line. If anything, it's going to make them worse because mm. that's a lot of stress on the heart. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, if you ever watch anything on a medical drama and someone's flatlining and they go to shock them, you're just making the person worse. Okay. Yeah. We just go straight into compressions then? Always, always. If somebody's heart stops, first thing you do is compressions. Okay. That's, yeah. Wow. Um, when you talk about suing, like, I mean, you hear about those guys who break ribs and then they come back to life and then they sue the EMT who saved their life. <laughs> if you're breaking ribs in CPR, you're doing it right. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, you're, you're physically compressing the heart with the palm of your hand. Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to push really far down. And a lot, most people you do CPR on, they're not young and healthy because those people's hearts don't stop. It's usually the elderly people and they've got uh, frail bones. And so breaking their ribs it's, it sounds gruesome. It's not that hard to break their ribs. Um, so I feel like that would have a whole extra host of problems, man. You know, you puncture a lung or something. You could, but at the same time, if somebody's heart stops beating, a punctured lung is secondary. Really? To that. Yeah. Well, think about it, because you need, you need blood to your brain. Right. And so whether or not there's a... Don't get me wrong. A punctured lung is very serious and can actually cause cardiac arrest. <laughs> but um, if somebody's heart stopped, a punctured lung is not as in worrying about a punctured lung isn't about as important as getting blood to the brain because you need that to survive right um but yeah i actually wonder how con i don't think it's very common to puncture a lung from cpr okay yeah you'd have to be like that right angle yeah pushing down just right there'd have to be some weird things to happen and i'm sure it has happened yeah I mean, you never know yeah. yeah um i could be uh wrong here but i think i've heard dubai at one point wanted to use like ferraris for their their ambulances it would be one driver and then they would transfer them and they would just like completely retrofit <laughs> that'd be cool <laughs> like that'd be pretty interesting and ferrari i mean i think if any company that makes luxury cars would make ambulances it'd be mercedes that's true because you always see those mercedes vans yeah so <laughs> you could deck one out deck out an ambulance with like nice leather seats Right. I love that meme. It's like when you tell her you drive a Mercedes and it's just like that shipping van. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah. That's cool, though. Um, 
I know that they keep they keep pushing for like new technology, and uh, I remember watching something from like twenty fifty where uh, a guy hypothetically fell off a roof, and I guess they like proposed that they wanted to cryo freeze his entire bloodstream. <laughs> that way, you don't have to worry about the heart, and then you can just like thaw him out when you get there. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're being cold does weird things to the body. I mean, like we talked about one time the stories of the kids who drowned in freezing cold water and they were underwater for 40 minutes to an hour and they brought them back fine wow you know um it's something about the extreme cold that allows i only i've only ever heard the stories with kids allows these kids to survive without oxygen for an extremely long time um you think it slows the metabolism technically like even though they're not alive or it could be i really have no idea i would just be you know talking on my ass right i wonder what like the uh the gut you know flora or whatever do whenever you're they probably die yeah i don't think those bacteria can survive that kind of temperature but yeah so the cold that's actually a thing that we do now once you bring somebody back from cardiac arrest is called targeted temperature management and so you actually cool off their body after cardiac arrest so you'll put you know you can put ice packs in their armpits and in their groin you can give them chilled saline oh wow all right so you set up an iv and you get that bag it's basically just salt water um but it's they've got a little refrigerator in the back of an ambulance and they keep that stuff in there and it's cooled off and so you want to reduce their core temperature and uh, they found that it actually increases people's uh, mental and cognitive abilities. Cold saline? After cardiac arrest. Yeah, just reducing their core temperature to a certain level. Oh, okay. After you get their heart starting, like their heart beating again. I think I got cold saline once in the military. I don't remember what for, but it was like, it really, huh. it's just that one spot is so cold, man. Well, okay, I mean that, the thing is, like, if you think about it, you probably didn't get chilled. Okay. Probably chilled You're saying it's room temperature, right? Yeah. And the your body's temperature is 98.6. Room temp is like 76. That makes sense. 75. So it's going to feel cold. It's relative cold. Right. But this stuff is chilled at, I don't know, like 50 degrees. Wow. So it's cold. That's really cold. Yeah. Uh, but they found that people come back with better mental function. That's awesome. Yeah. So something about the cold and not getting blood to your brain hmm. or oxygen to your brain, really. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, just learning about the body. Because for me, uh, being an aircraft maintainer and definitely seeing how maintenance is done mm-hmm. and knowing what it takes to keep an aircraft in the, in the air, uh, now you know how fragile the human body is. Are you just, like, paranoid now? A lot of times, especially with driving, yeah. Uh, car crashes, when it comes to EMS, car crashes freak me out more than anything um, just because of how violent they are and how dangerous it is for everybody involved. Because you're on a busy highway, you know, people see an ambulance on the side of the road is like, one, it's an obstacle, it's something that's annoying because it's, it's in their way, they're trying to get home or get to work, but then it's also, it draws everybody's attention. Rubbernecking. Yeah, and you tend to drift the way you're looking. And so you're on scene, and you're always running the risk of being hit by a car. 
Jeez. Um, and then car crashes are so, like I said, they can be really violent, and we're so fragile that, yeah, like, learning about EMS and doing some work in EMS has definitely made me a more cautious driver, because I've seen what can happen if you're not. Right. Um, and then, yeah, like, if I've got family members or friends that are sick with something, I start thinking about, like, oh, it could be X, Y, and Z. Because we're taught in EMS, like, if somebody presents with a sign or symptom, you think about the deadliest thing first. Like, what is the deadliest thing that would present with this sign and symptom? So if someone's got chest pain, you know, we start with heart attack, pulmonary embolism, um, you know, thing, know, pericarditis, things like that. And then once we've ruled all of those out, then we'll go on to, well, maybe they've got, like, inflammation in their cartilage, in their ribs, costochondritis. You know, maybe it's musculoskeletal. Uh, maybe it could be uh, gastric reflux. That can actually cause chest pain and make people think they're having a heart attack. Is like acid reflux. Um, <clears throat> but so, yeah, then when I have friends and family that tell me some signs or symptoms, I kind of freak out at first. I'm like, oh, it could be this, this, or that. Um like I said, like your friend, when, you know, you said she had an instant, sudden, sharp pain in her abdomen, first thing that popped in my head was abdominal aortic aneurysm. And then you said aneurysm over the phone. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, like, I'm right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, okay, let's say you arrive on scene and you have an unconscious woman who's pregnant. Oh, shit. What do you do? Who, who, I mean, okay. does the baby well, take? Yeah. No. Mother's life is always the first thing you save. Okay. Um, than the baby. I mean, ideally both, right. right? But if you have to make a choice between the fetus or baby, depending on how far along it is in your political views or religious belief, baby or mama, you're going to save mama first. Um, that's just how it goes. Uh, so, okay, so pregnant woman, unconscious, where are we? Just at her house? <laughs> sure. Sure, just at a house. I mean, first thing you do is you go up and you try and talk to her like, hey ma'am, I'm with EMS, what's going on? No response. Um, So she's not responding to words. So the next thing you do is you check if she'll respond to pain. This is all levels of consciousness, right? We're not just hurting people because it's it's fun or funny (laughs) to like, no, so you, you inflict some kind of minor pain. They'll teach us like you pinch their trapezius muscle between the shoulder and the neck. The Vulcan nerve pinch? Yeah, the Vulcan nerve, <laughs> yeah, you do that with the opposite uh, effect, right? You're hoping to wake them up instead of knock them out. Um, and so then if they don't respond to pain, that means they're really, they're unresponsive. Okay. That's like no mental functioning at all right now at the current moment. So after you've done that level of responsiveness, you then go and check for their carotid pulse and their breathing. Because this is the first indicate, let's make sure that their heart's working. So you check the carotid pulse, make sure they're breathing. And if both of those are present, you're like, okay, cool. At least at least we've got that. Um, then you go and you look in her airway, right, in their mouth. You do what's called head tilt chin lift, where you kind of, you pull back the head and you lift them up at the chin, kind of like take their head back. Like Get a straight shot. If you're looking at the clouds, yeah. And you look inside their mouth, make sure that there's no obstructions, any blood secretions, nothing that's blocking the airway. You want to make sure that's open. You want to make sure that they're breathing. 
uh, you assess rate, rhythm, and quality of the breathing. So, like, are they breathing too fast, breathing too slow? Is it shallow really shallow? Is yeah. it too deep? Uh, and then you go to circulation. So you'll check their check their pulse. That one, rate, rhythm, quality. You'll check their skin. Uh, color, temperature, condition, that tells you a lot about how well blood's moving in the body. Wow. Um, so yeah, you, you do those. Those are like your very basics. They teach you they, EMT basics. They all do that. That's like your bread and butter. If you can keep those three things, we call them the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. If you can keep those good and healthy, or if they are, then you're golden. The rest is kind of I mean, the rest is still important, but those are the three main things you want to work on. That's the 80-20 right there, right? The 80-20? Yeah, the, uh, what is it, the 80% that you'll use oh. is 20% of the information versus the, mm. yeah. So. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's like that. Tim Ferriss would scold me right now for not remembering that off the top of my head. Um, okay, so we covered unconscious. Now, what about conscious people uh what percentage would you say is in shock versus complete frenzy what do you mean let's say you arrive on scene how often is somebody just completely you know vacant distant they you know they let's say they lost a finger but they're not Mm. freaking out over it versus oh my god i just lost a finger you know you need to take me now yeah i mean like it's not too many calls or true emergencies okay and then the ones that are, people handle them completely different. I mean, you'll have somebody, like, it's an emergency, they need to go to the hospital, they've got, I love this phrase, they've got one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel. What is that? So, I mean, the, gen- the original term, they've got one foot in the grave, which means this person's about to die, right? Like, they're on the brink of death. They've got one foot in the grave, right? Um, then heard somebody else said they've got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, which means they're about to die and just like the tiniest push and they whoop. Oh no. Slip in. <laughs> uh, you'll have people that are, you know, they're having a true emergency, but they're cool as a cucumber. They don't care. It's, I mean, they care. Sure. But they're not phased. They're completely nonplus. Then you'll have people who, you know, they've. I mean, breaking a bone can be pretty painful, but you'll have somebody and they're just completely overreacting. They're thinking it's way worse than it is. and But that's completely okay because, you know, being sick is a scary thing. Being hurt is a scary thing. And some people just don't handle fear as... Um, oh, what's the word? They don't handle it as well as other people, as stoically as other people. Um yeah, so really it's just a grab bag of who you get and how they react to whatever's causing them issues. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's say somebody like ODs on, on medication, but mm-hmm. you guys don't know that. Um, you know, how quick would it, it take you to figure, like, you know, to get to pumping the stomach? Like, what would you check for something like that when it's completely uh, self so this is where your detective, like EMS has a lot of detective work, is something that I've learned. You okay. really have to play Sherlock Holmes in a lot of situations. Wow. So if you show up, like let's say somebody, like you said, OD'd on a medication, well, so let's, they're unconscious, they're on the ground, and first you do every life-saving thing you have to do, right? If they're not breathing well, you breathe for them, right? You've 
seen that with the bag valve mask where they put a mask on somebody's face and they squeeze that big bag to breathe for them. You might have to do that. Um, hopefully you don't have to do CPR. Are the lungs that easy to inflate and deflate and are that elastic to just have a little pump? Oh, little well the pump's pump? not pump's not little. That, that bag that you're squeezing to pump air, that's like the size of a football. Oh, okay. Maybe a little smaller. Right. The hard part is getting the mask to seal on their face. Um, you know, people who have like a big beard, that can make it hard. Hmm. Um, Would you have to shave someone? You know, I've never heard of people shaving the beard. I have heard of Vaseline. If huh. This is only in like the OR, like the operating room, because I don't think we carry Vaseline on an ambulance, but... If you smear that on their beard, it helps you get a better mask seal. Mm. Um, but so, this the detective work for the OD, right? So once you do your life-saving measures, then you have... This is where it's nice having the firefighters on scene, because you have four extra pairs of hands to help you out. You can have them look around the room, look around the house. Hey, do you see any empty pill bottles? Any open containers? Maybe it's like cleaning equipment. Um... So that you do is there are there any bystanders there like are they with a friend can you ask the friend hey what's going on uh, you know if the friend's kind of reluctant to tell you like oh I don't know we just passed out and they look like drug addicts you know they've got marks in their arms you know um, then you might think okay it could be heroin um, and a heroin overdose any type of like opiate that's actually really nice in terms of treatment because we can take care of that right away how so there's a drug called narcan or naloxone is the generic name and it's it just reverses all the effects of opioids wow so i'm being very simple with it but basically you put it in and it just knocks all the opioids out of your system wow yeah so someone will be they'll overdose on heroin they'll be passed out at the bus station you know at the bus stop they're not breathing you know, heroin's kind of like, hey, everything's really nice. Right. Everything's really nice. Don't listen to that nagging voice in the back of your head telling you to breathe. Don't worry about it. Oh, wow. So they stop breathing. And so we show up. That's and, like Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> and so we show up, and if we know that that's what's wrong with them, we just give them a little... There's different ways to administer it, but you give them this medication, and then almost instantly they'll start breathing again. Uh, if you give them too much... It'll bring them completely back to normal, sober consciousness, and they'll get pissed off at you because you just killed their high. Oh, man. Um, what if you gave it to just a normal person? I don't think it would do anything. Okay. I don't think it's like I don't think it's super dangerous to give to somebody who's not drugged out right. on opioids. Um, but, yeah, so detective work. You try and figure out whatever way you can, whether it's searching the room, talking with people who are there, um checking their pockets maybe there's some kind of like a suicide note or they've got a pill bottle inside their pockets right you got to be careful with that because they might have needles in their pockets yeah you never know i've heard of that yeah so yeah there's a lot of detective work even with non-overdose things figuring out if someone's presenting with very generic signs and symptoms like oh like i've got abdominal pain you know they've just got generic pain around here in their abdomen and that could be at any number of causes. Plenty of them are life-threatening. Really? Yeah, sure. And so then you have to go through their medical history, their uh, medications that they take, 
what they were doing when this happened with women any woman on or under the age of like 40 even now even you can get 40 uh you have to ask them is there any chance that you're pregnant because uh, a pregnant woman with abdominal pain is very bad yeah you don't want that at all um yeah, so there's plenty of deadly things. If a pregnant woman's got abdominal pain, there's plenty of deadly things with that. Um, your statement about the uh, junkie being mad about taking out of the high, I've actually heard that they're trying to administer cures for uh, addictions. Let's say you have a heroin addiction. They would give you, like, I'll just call it, for lack of a better word, uh, anti-heroin, uh-huh. and it <laughs> negates any benefit or feeling from heroin if you ever use it yeah and so like even if you got your hands on heroin and started shooting up like it doesn't do anything to you huh so they said that mixed with you know therapy can can stop people but like interesting <laughs> yeah that, that would be especially if you're like a lifelong junkie and then just like yeah we're gonna take away your ability to get high you know? yeah hopefully it can change their life but i feel like there'd be a lot of pissed off people yeah heroin addiction just I mean, there's, you'll hear people talk about the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many people addicted to opiates. It's not heroin, though. That's not what people are, I mean, people are addicted to heroin, but that's not the epidemic. The epidemic is prescription opiates. Xanax, right? I heard that's worse than heroin. Xanax is a benzodiazepine. That's a different type of medication. Okay. Uh, no, we're talking like hydrocodone. Gotcha. Um, codeine's an opiate. Um, so, and like it's, I said... Huh? Percocet? I'm not sure what Percocet is, but any type of, like, narcotic. Mm -hmm. It's the prescription pills that are causing the epidemic. It's not the street heroin that you'll see the guy shooting up in a back alleyway. It's the one that comes in the little orange bottle. Yeah. Man. That's wild, dude. Uh, Do you have anything you want to speak on, I guess, about the uh, biological and neurological... Uh, side of your degree? Um, I mean, neuroscience is really cool. It's extremely complicated. Um, even just learning about the basic cell of the nervous system, the neuron, mm-hmm. that could take months. There's so much information behind what's going on inside those single cells compared to any other cell. Because they have the same, you know, basic parts of every other cell you know they've got a nucleus they've got mitochondria you know they've got membranes but then they've got this whole signaling network that they form and is that the axion and yeah the axon is part of the neuron the axon is the long um like tube it's almost like the the train track or the telephone wire Uh that sends the signal um yeah the neuron's pretty cool well, that looks like about 43 minutes. Uh, oh, yeah, I think that should give people enough to uh, hold them over for another 18 months, right? <laughs> no, well, we, uh, we're definitely going to have to try and do this more. Yeah. Uh, get some more people in. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about medicine for days. Oh. Yeah, man. I, I definitely need to do uh, a little bit more research to kind of spark some more questions. But, yeah, you seem very uh, knowledgeable about a, lot of, about a lot of the stuff, and you seem to... Um, be able to break it down layman wise so i do appreciate that um, yeah well uh you know where, where can these guys find you do you have like a twitter or instagram or anything 
<laughs> no. All right. Well, don't contact Dylan then, people. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor today. It's Molten Boron. Uh, nobody does it like Molten Boron. And you two can have a gallon delivered for $10.99 a month. And, uh, again, we appreciate you for coming. Uh, thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, you guys have a good one, and we'll see you soon.